Well, our sermon text this morning is in the book of Psalms. It is Psalm 80, 80. Uh, So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn there and follow along, I'll invite you to do that at this time. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Psalm 80, give ear to the word of, of God. It says, to the choir master, according to the lilies, a, a, um, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. And it says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayers, uh, with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Uh, It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field Feed on it. Turn again, O Lord of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock, that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you, Excuse me. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you especially even this morning for the book of Psalms in which uh, you give us so many different kinds of, of psalms, different kinds of songs whether they be laments or songs of praise, uh, whatever the case, you give us all these psalms that we might be equipped uh, better to worship you regardless of whatever circumstance or situation that we may find ourselves in. Even in dire straits, you give your people here in the book of Psalms like this one we're going to look at this morning. uh, You give us and show us the way to worship and even to pray in time of great distress, even national distress. And we ask once again that you might be pleased to fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you might work in us what's pleasing in your sight and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 80, uh, many of the commentators and scholars, they believe it was written right around the time uh, of the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom, which took place around 722 B.C. You might remember, if you know your Old Testament history much, uh, that the, at some point after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. And so you had the ten northern tribes, uh, which we often are, are referred to in, in the Old Testament. Uh, after that point, they usually refer to them as Israel or something along those lines. And the southern kingdom is where Jerusalem, the capital was. Uh, that's often referred to as the Judah. So when you're reading 
First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Sometimes it'll say so and so reigned in Israel this long, and elsewhere it'll say and so and so reigned in Judah. That's what it's referring to. This kind of division of the nation of Israel, uh, the divided kingdom. Well, so. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian army, that's where Nineveh was the capital, remember? Uh, the book of Jonah, the Assyrians came in and wiped out the northern tribes. And then later on, in around 586 B.C., sometime later, uh, the Babylonians came and took uh, the tribe of Judah, the, the southern kingdom, away into captivity, as you think of and read of in the book of, of Daniel, for example. Um, well, this psalm, written around the time of the Assyrian captivity of the north, uh, it expresses dismay over the sinful and miserable state of the nation and its wayward people at this time. Uh, this may have been right before the Assyrian captivity. It may have been during it. Uh, but what it is, is it's a prayer. Most of the psalms, you know, they're meant to be sung. They are songs. Some of them even have, a, like this one does, it says, according in the title above, it says, according to, to the lilies or according to lilies. We don't know what that tune sounded like. Uh, but most commentators believe that is a tune of some kind meant to, to sing the song, uh, the song too. So they're songs. They are also prayers. And so these, these kinds of psalms equip us and teach us how to pray in all kinds of different uh, circumstances. And this particular psalm is a, a prayer for restoration, um, not just to, to national prosperity for its own <coughs> sake, but it's a prayer for restoration, the restoration of, uh, of the people of Israel to the favor of God. It's a prayer for reconciliation with God and restoration is only what comes as a result of, of that. Three times in this psalm, you may have caught it when I was reading it, the ESV renders it, uh, it says three times there, restore us. That's verses 3, 7, and 19. Uh, in this particular case, I think the King James Version puts it a little bit, a little bit better and the King James puts it this way. It says three times, turn us again. Turn us again. It's, it's praying, uh, in praying to the Lord this way, the psalmist isn't just asking God to restore us, you know, the people to their former prosperity and peace. Uh, he's asking God to grant them the repentance that was needed in, or, in order for that to be possible. There is no return to, uh, no restoration to peace and prosperity without the repentance that's required for it to happen. You know, it, think, think about it this way, if I can use a, a, I'm not good at illustrations, but think about it this way. Let's say that you have a friendship or a family member and you have a falling out and, and not just a random falling out where there was a misunderstanding, but let's say there was some kind of, of you know, real sin that happened that brought a rift between you and them, whether it be on your part or theirs, you know, put the shoe whichever foot you want to put it on. Um, how can reconciliation happen without repentance and forgiveness? It can't. You know, it, it would be as if to pray in their situation, to pray for God to restore the glory, you know, the glory days and the prosperity without the repentance would be to go to that person that you sinned against. I'll put the shoe on our own feet. And to say, hey, what's the big deal? Why don't, why don't you just treat me nice like you did before? Why don't we just get along without ever repenting of what you did? Acting like it never happened uh, and not even seeking forgiveness. That's kind of what that kind of praying would be like uh, in, in, this, in this or any age, really, to ask for restoration without asking for repentance. David Dixon, in his commentary on the Psalms, writes this. 
I think it sums up the whole psalm very well in kind of a, a brief little snapshot. He says, The sum of this psalm is a lamenting of the miserable condition of the Israelites and an earnest entreating of the Lord to give them repentance and delivery. So it is a, a lament of their, miserable, of their misery, which was brought on by their sin, and it's an earnest prayer to God to grant them repentance and delivery because of it. So for their present distress, uh, if you think about it, I think this, this psalm spells it out well for us. Just like the captivities were from Assyria and, and uh, Babylon, their present distress that the psalmist is writing about was surely a chastisement from God. It was a chastisement from God on account of their sin, their rebellion, their idolatry, and, and there would be no restoration without repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is basically a sincere turning back to the Lord from sin and wickedness. It's a turning back to God in faith. And so when you read, you know, the descriptions that the psalmist gives here are pretty stark. I mean, you read them and, and you think, wow, what an awful time to be around Israel at that time. Uh, but their greatest problem was not their affliction and misery. Their greatest problem was not their affliction and misery. Their greatest problem which was the root of their sin, of their misery, was their sin and unrepentance. Their greatest problem was their sin and unrepentance. And so their greatest need was not just peace and prosperity, but repentance. And so that's what the psalmist shows us in this psalm. He prays not just for prosperity, a return to it. He prays for repentance three times, asking God, turn us again. Turn us back to yourself is what he is, is praying. And the same is true, I think, uh, for in our own day in many ways as well. These things were written for our instruction and not just for our uh, be, being to be interesting to us. Uh, are we concerned with the state of our own country? I think, I don't know, if you're paying attention, I don't know how you couldn't be. Are we concerned, are we grieved at the godlessness and the misery that we see spreading and multiplying all around? How could any sincere believer in Christ not be grieved at such things? If we, if we have any concern for the good of our neighbors and for the glory of God, how could we not be grieved by such things? But if we would see our land restored to her former blessing and prosperity, the most needful thing in our land is repentance and revival. And so our prayers should reflect that. That's the way the psalmist prays here, and I think he sets a good example for us in that, in that regard. The same... The same holds true for churches. The same holds true for individual believers. Are we under chastisement from God? Are the heavens seemingly made of brass, as it were, as the saying goes? Is, is, God, is, it, is it going in such a way as it seems as if God is angry with our prayers? That's what he says in the psalm. It's a shocking thing to see on the page. Like, we would never think to say it that way. We might say it in a kind of a milder way. You know, it seems like God's not really answering our prayers. He says God's not just not answering. God's angry about their prayers. It's almost as if, and we don't want to read too much into it, but you almost get the, the, the idea that the more they prayed the way they were praying, not the psalmist, but the people, you know, you know basically just restore us, uh, the more God sent more chastisement because they weren't, they weren't seeking to repent. They just wanted things to go back to normal and go back to the good old days. Are we under chastisement from God? If the heavens are brass that way, 
then what should we do? What should you do if you find yourself in that situation where God is chastising you for your sin? And make no mistake, if God is doing that, this is just my own, my own pious advice, you can disregard this, I don't think you'll have to wonder if that's what's happening. Not all suffering is chastisement from God. Not all of your suffering, and in fact I would say most of it isn't, as a result, a direct result of your own sin, but sometimes it is. And I think in those times, you will have no question that that's what's happening. It will, God will make it clear to you somehow that there is something with which in your life which, which he wants to deal with and wants to turn you from. And he's using, at times, suffering and chastisement to do that. And what should you do if that's the case? You must diligently and sincerely seek after repentance, even praying to God that he might himself grant such repentance to us and as the psalmist says, let his face shine upon us once again as he did in former days. So the first thing we see in this psalm is the psalmist lament his cries to God uh, to save his wayward people. And in this, I think, he shows us the need for repentance. His prayer shows us the need for repentance on the part of Israel and on our own parts as well. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. He says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, or, or uh, turn us back. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You know, if you think about it, if you think about the circumstances that they were in at the time, with, with either the captivity in full swing or right on the horizon, like there's been destruction already coming in with the Assyrian armies. Whatever the case, it looks bad and it looks like it's going to get nothing but worse. Notice what he says about God. He says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Even in the time of such misery and distress, that's a remarkable expression of faith in a time of darkness. He doesn't say the shepherd has wandered off. He says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who to lead or tend your people like a flock. Despite all the misery and, and sin and things all around him, despite the evidence of God's fatherly displeasure upon his people, the psalmist still has the faith and the hope to call God the shepherd of Israel. And even mentions, even at the present, in all they were going through, that God was still, present tense, lead. he doesn't say you who used to lead us like a flock. He says, you who lead us like a flock, lead Joseph like a flock. He knew that God, uh, despite his fatherly displeasure, he had not utterly forsaken his people as wayward as they were. In fact, in some ways, the chastisement was proof of that. What does Hebrews say God does to those whom he loves? Every son he receives, he disciplines. And if we, if we don't have discipline from God, we're illegitimate and not sons at all. It's God's love that leads him to chastise his people, that he might stir us up and turn us back to himself. And so the psalmist cries out to God in rapid fire in verses 1 through 3 to give ear to their prayers, to shine forth, verse 1, to stir up his might in order to save them. He doesn't, he doesn't have any doubt that God is still mighty to save, but he's saying stir yourself up on our, on our behalf. He wants God to restore his people to his good graces, his favor, that his face might once again shine upon them, and then verse 3, that they might be saved. Now that last request, 
in verse 3 is that refrain that's repeated just about word for word. The only thing that changes is that the name for God that he uses each time changes a little bit. But it's found three times, verses 3, 7, and 19, uh, when he tells God and asks God to restore them or to turn them back to him again. Now look, look at the way the psalmist expresses the miseries of their condition, of their affliction, in verses 4 through 6. He says, O Lord God of hosts. That's a military term. God is the, a God of hosts is a God who has arm, the, the armies of angels in heaven. It's a, it's a military kind of picture. So you know, if you think about the, the armies that may have been threatening them at the very moment, he's acknowledging God is the God of hosts. God is the one who has armies uh, that no earthly army can withstand. But he says, how long, verse 4, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Again, God wasn't just not answering. It seemed like he was offended by their very prayers. He says, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh amongst themselves. You've made us a laughing stock. The apple of your eye has become a laughing stock, so to speak. Now, they didn't merely look upon their present affliction and distress like we might do. They, might, they didn't just look upon it as, as if it were bad luck. There's no such thing. They didn't look at it as just unfortunate circumstance that had nothing to do with much of anything. They didn't view history. They didn't view current events the way that deists or atheists do. That's the way sometimes even believers can be tempted to think. It's just one thing happens after another with no cause, no connection between one to the other. They didn't look at those things the way that deists or atheists do, and neither should we. We should look at history. You know, it's often said kind of glibly, but history is his story. It's God doing things, and we should look at it. We might not be able to read God's mind at all times. We can't always pull the curtain back, so to speak, and and say that with, with confidence, I know God is doing this through this situation. A lot of times it's after the fact. We look back and see what God did through whatever it happened to be. But we should know and have faith that God is the one orchestrating all these things that are happening. He has his good purposes in them. He even works all things together for good to those who love him, as Romans says, and are called according to his purpose. Um, but they didn't see the things the way that deists do. They, they rightly saw in this case that their afflictions were tokens of God's fatherly displeasure and chastisement. There was sin that needed to be repented of, and God was trying to get their attention and would have their attention one way or the other. Their miseries were such that tears, he says twice, tears were their food and drink. Sounds like there was a lot of of misery and and weeping going on. Uh, Ultimately, God, he says, was the one who fed them this and gave them their tears to drink. He doesn't just say, hey, God, don't you notice we're having tears? He says, you gave this to them for their food and drink. He even describes God again as being angry with the prayers of his people. Uh, In other words, think about this. As hard of heart as the people were, how hard of heart do you think they would have had to be in the northern and the southern kingdoms for God to bring in pagan heathen armies and wipe the place out? You know, it's, it's... just a hair shy of, of, in some ways, God's judgment in Noah's day. It's like God just, I'm starting over, and just wipes the land clean of them because of their sin. He brings them back. He does restore them eventually, so it's not quite on the same level, but it's pretty severe. How, how hard of heart in their sin did they have to be, do you think, for God to do that? 
God is slow to anger, right? Psalm 103. God is rich in mercy and slow in anger, bounding in steadfast love. Uh, but his patience has, has limits. It's much higher than our limits, but he has limits to these things. But they still prayed. As hard of heart as they were, they still prayed. You know, we might think, we might think that, well, if they're hard of heart, they just won't pray. They just won't worship God. Nothing further could be further from the truth. They were hard of heart, and they still went to the temple. They still went to synagogue. They still prayed to God, even for restoration, not the way the psalmist is, but uh, for the good old days. They were still praying, but they weren't repenting. In other words, it's hypocrisy. No wonder God hated their prayers and was angry at them. They were praying, but they weren't repenting. Uh, You might think that in such a hard-hearted spiritual condition that they were in that they wouldn't pray at all, but that wasn't what was happening. And think about this in the New Testament. Who else do you see doing just this kind of thing? The Pharisees. Did the Pharisees not pray? Of course they did. They prayed. Jesus rebuked them for wanting to 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 pray in public in such a way as to be seen. We pray in public worship, but not to be seen. We're not out in the street corners trying to show how how godly we are in praying loud so people can see us and hear us and that kind of a of a thing. Now the Pharisees prayed and they made much of their prayers even in public, but Jesus tells us that, that the reason for their prayers was just that they might be seen by men. And he says, and I tell you the truth, they have their reward already. And the reward wasn't being answered by God, it was being seen by men. That was their goal in the whole thing to begin with, right? Was to be seen by men, but those same men that prayed and prayed such public prayers hated Christ and had him killed. They still prayed, but their prayers angered God. The people still went through the motions. They prayed for deliverance from their enemies, uh, but they had, as of yet at least, refused to turn back from God in sincere repentance. And so should they really have been surprised that God disregarded their prayers and was even angry with them over such hypocrisy. It shouldn't surprise us at all. In fact, it reminds me of, you know, we just went through the book of, of Malachi a number of, of months ago, of some of the things that were mentioned in the book of Malachi, but it also reminds me very much of Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1 is a very disturbing chapter. If you read it, uh, you see the real, uh, it's God basically telling them, here's your spiritual condition as a nation uh, before the judgment was to come. It says Isaiah 1 Verses 10 through 17, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, and look at what he calls them. You rulers of Sodom. Sounds like our culture nowadays. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's not pulling punches. He's saying, you're as wicked as them. And remember what I did to them? His own people were mimicking Sodom and Gomorrah. We see some of that even in the church today. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? They were still going to the temple. They were still offering the sacrifices that God had ordained. But he says, what to me is the multitude of them? You keep keep bringing your rams and lambs and goats and everything all you want, right? Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? It's, you know, it it almost sounds like he's talking, he he goes from talking about uh, the burnt offerings of of rams and well-fed beasts and, and bulls and lambs and goats 
to the people acting like bulls and goats and rams, kind of just running through the house, running through God's house and trampling it. He calls their worship a trampling of his courts. It's, it's amazing to think about. It. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Same thing said in Malachi chapter 1. Bring no more vain offerings, incense, and he's talking about incense that God had commanded as part of the, the, the temple service. Incense is an abomination to me. Incense was supposed to smell sweet and smell good to God, but not if they weren't repenting. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot, here it is, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. It's like if you can go to church all you want, but if you're going to go to church and stay unrepentant, you're wasting your time. That's, it's, that's kind of what he's saying here with, with the circumstances of, of the temple. He says, uh, I have, your new moon, your appointed feast, my soul hates. That's some harsh language. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And here it is, when you spread out your hands, it's talking about prayer. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. He says, then wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In other words, repent. Don't stay in unrepentance and keep bringing me offerings and sacrifices and prayers. If you're not going to repent, those things are meaningless. They're not just meaningless. They're worse than that. They're an offense. It's adding guilt to their sin on top of guilt. Their worship was so polluted by idolatry and unrepentance that God had rejected it. His, he viewed their, offer, their offerings, their animal. You know, the offerings were supposed to reconcile them to God. They were supposed to be the means of, of reconciliation between God and his people who had sinned. And he calls their offerings an abomination. And he says he hated their feasts. And he hid his eyes from their prayers. And I'll ask you this, something I ask very often when we look at the Old Testament. Has God changed? Does God change? Does he act one way in the Old Testament and suddenly act totally different now that the New Testament we've turned the page? Many people seem to think that that's the case. It's not. Did he save his people by grace in the Old Testament? You bet he did. Every single person in the Old Testament who was ever saved by God was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ who has yet to come alone. They're saved the same way as you and me. Were they expected to obey differently than we are? Are, are we not expected to obey as a, as a result of our salvation and as a response to it? It, was it any different with them? No. We just read the Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. God basically says, I saved you, now live like this. It's the same thing he says to us. We aren't saved by the law. We're not saved by obeying God's law. We're not saved by our own good works, but we are saved in order that we might walk in those things to show our gratitude for God's salvation of us from our sins. God has not changed. Uh, a, small, uh, a similar example, not quite as harsh sounding, but in the New Testament we are told in, un, in no uncertain terms that unrepentant sin can hinder our prayers. Right? 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman 
as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Here it is. Why? So that your prayers may not be what? Hindered. In other words, you might be wasting your breath. You might be praying, 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 but if you're not repenting and if you're treating your family wrong, you have things to clean up before God's going to listen to our prayers. So let us earnestly pray, but let us be sure that our sin is not hindering our prayers and that we are repenting before God. And so we should be, I think, according to Psalm 80, we need to be more concerned about our sins than our afflictions. I don't know about you, but I'm very concerned about things in our country. I'm concerned about the price of everything going through the roof and how things just seem to be so much worse. Not seem to be, they are worse. Despite what we're being told, we've been told uh, by a certain public uh, political figure recently that our economy is as fast as it's ever been. It's been great. No, it's not. It's terrible. And no one should be allowed to lie to us through their teeth that way. And we're right to be upset about it. We are right to be upset about how things are. There'd be something wrong with you if you weren't. But we should be much more upset and concerned about our sins and the sins of our nation than we are the afflictions that come as a result of those sins. If all we do is get upset about the afflictions and chastisements that are a result of those sins and not deal with the sins themselves, then we have no right to be upset. We have, we're not thinking the way that we should do. We should be much more desirous for righteousness and the glory of God than our own comfort. For those afflictions and chastisements that God sends are meant to wake us up. They're meant to awaken us as a people for our need for repentance and restoration. David Dixon again writes the following. He says, we are more sensible, we notice it, we are more sensible of the evil of trouble than of the evil of sin. The tears of repentance are very rare and soon dried up. But the tears of sorrow for affliction easily flow as affliction increaseth or continueth and that in God's wise dispensation. Worldly sorrow for affliction may drive us to godly sorrow for offending God. That's the goal. That's the purpose for God sending those afflictions is to make worldly sorrow for affliction lead to godly sorrow for sin and offending God. And I have to say, I think in, in much of our current discussion, even on the conservative side, even in the church, we stop far short of that. We cry about the affliction. I know I do. Maybe you do too. But we don't cry out about the sin that's brought that affliction upon our nation. So let us never settle for tears and prayers over afflictions and troubles if those afflictions and troubles are in truth a chastisement from God. And that goes for us as individuals, as families, and as churches as much as it does for our nation. Let us pray and seek after repentance and reconciliation to God first and foremost. And that's exactly what the psalmist here teaches us to do in this psalm. Verse verse 3 again in the King James, the psalmist says, He cries out, Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. So he's, he's not just praying for restoration, so, so-called. He's praying for repentance and revival. He's praying for reconciliation to God. Because that was the most needful thing, and only God can do that. Only God can change the heart. Only God himself can truly grant repentance and revival. Every once in a while, driving around, I'll see a church 
Uh, maybe you've seen this too. And they'll have a sign out front saying, Revival next Wednesday at 6 p.m. And I always get kind of a chuckle out of that as if, you know, you could just kind of put your order in and, and you know, schedule it on a certain day and God's obligated and it's going to certainly send one. If that were the case, that would be great. We would schedule one this afternoon. Uh, maybe even before lunch we would do that. But, uh, but he says, turn us again and cause thy face to shine. He's praying for repentance. He's praying for revival and teaching us to do the same. And that's, that's the most needful thing again. Only God can grant such things. If there is to be a sincere and thoroughgoing repentance in your life or mine or in the life of our country or in the church, it must come from God. Only God can work that. It must come from the Lord. In fact, Paul says as much in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We haven't gotten there yet in our study of 2 Timothy, but 2 Timothy 2 verses 24 to 26, it's a different context, but the same truth being taught here. Paul says to Timothy, and the Lord's servant, he's talking about the minister, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Here it is. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their own senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. No amount of arguing in and of itself, by itself, is ever going to turn someone from unbelief and from heresy. God has to be the one that grants the repentance. And that's why Paul says to him, in, in many ways, don't be quarrelsome about it. Correct them you know, gently. Why? Because you're not the one that's going to correct them. I mean, you, you make the attempt, but if they're going to have their minds and hearts changed through the truth, who has to do it? God does. And so you don't have to beat somebody over the head you don't have to take it personally and get angry. You correct them gently and pray that God might grant them repentance. So true repentance of any form must come from God. God must grant it himself or it will not come. That's true of individual sinners. It's true of our nation as a whole. The repentance and faith of Nicodemus in the Gospels is no less a miracle of the sovereign grace of God than the repentance we see in the city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. Both were only the, the miracle of the grace, the sovereign grace of God. And so our prayer should reflect this. That's why the psalmist here repeatedly cries out to God that he might turn his people back to them. In fact, the Hebrew word he uses for, for turn here in our passage, it's, it's the Hebrew word shuv. Uh, it looks, it kind of sounds like shove, but it's not what it means. Um, it's basically the, the most common Hebrew word for to repent. Very often it's just translated repent. But in this case, he's asking God to work the repentance. And so he says, turn them, turn us back to you, uh, O God. And so what, what is repentance? Repentance is a turning from sin and unbelief back to God. That's what happened if you're a believer. It's what happened at your conversion. You turn from your sin. If you're a Christian, you turn from your sin and unbelief and you turn back to God in faith in Christ. And so if you and I would see revival in our land and in the church, it must start with earnest prayer for it. If you and I would see our land turned back to the Lord and restored to his favor, we must pray for repentance and revival starting with his church. What does the Bible say? Where does the Bible say judgment begins? With the household of God, the family of God, the church. If, if we don't repent, we cannot possibly expect the culture around us, the unbelieving world around us, 
will have any kind of repentance whatsoever. It brings to my mind the words, very well-known words of Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 to 15, which we have looked at recently. But it says this, when I, this is God talking. He says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. That place was the temple he was talking about. But notice, notice the direction that's going on here. He says we have to humble ourselves and pray, seek his face, turn from their wicked ways, then he hears from heaven forgives their sin, and what comes last? Heal their land. I think the problem with, with us at times, and I know it has been with me and maybe it is with you, we just pray heal our land. We, nothing wrong with wanting the land to be healed, but we, we, we skip the rest. We say, God, heal the land, and we don't say, turn us back from our wicked ways and forgive our sin and heal our land. That is what God instructs us to do. And when you read this, you know, when, this is at the dedication of the temple, right? It's as if God is saying, this is going to happen. Don't think that because you have the temple that you have a little lucky rabbit's foot and that nothing's ever going to go wrong and you're just good as long as you have the temple. In fact, that's exactly how they treated the temple. I think it's in the book of Jeremiah where they rebu he rebukes the people for saying this. It sounds silly to our ears, but it's kind of a poetic way of putting it. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, we've got this, we're good. But what did God do? Wiped it to the ground. Where's your temple? Now what? Did it more than once in judgment upon his people. So do we want revival? There's a way to find it. Humility, seeking God's face in prayer, repenting from our wicked ways. That's what leads to forgiveness and healing. That's true for individual sinners, us and our lives, and it's true for nations as well. And so... Let us be sure that such a revival and deliverance must come from the Lord Jesus Christ. No politician, however well-intended and sincere they may be, no politician can bring such revival or restoration. God, in his mercy, may use them. Nothing wrong, per se, with a politician or someone elected. Um, but only God, in his mercy, even if he uses them as a means, uh, must grant it. In fact, we must look to Christ and no politician for such things. And I, th I think in our text, the psalmist even points that out to us uh, in, in a very obvious, I think, way. The psalmist in verses 17 to 18 says, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Give us life. Revive us. But how and, and through whom? The man of God's right hand, the son of man. Now that in the immediate context, may have been a reference to an earthly king. Maybe they expected the Messiah to come in their day as the, as the king and overthrow their enemies and rescue them, whatever the case. But it certainly is pointing to Jesus Christ. James Boyce writes this, Who is this son of man? It is impossible not to think of Jesus Christ who used these words of himself, son of man, and who is undoubtedly the one by whom the fortunes of all God's peoples are to be restored. There's no restoration except from Jesus Christ and through 
him. It's through Christ and him alone that we are delivered and restored both as individual sinners in need of salvation as well as a nation as well. It is when he revives us as a people by pouring out his spirit upon us that we will learn not to turn back from God. In other words, even at the end of the psalm, he's saying, turn us back to you, revive us, and we won't what? We won't do it again. We won't turn back away from you just one more time as we had done in the past. It is only as Christ revives us and gives us life that we will learn to call upon his name, as it says there, and worship him rightly as his people. You know, when, that's what revival is. Give us life. That's what we're praying for, that God would stir up his spirit and pour out his spirit upon us, that we might be revived and live unto God. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself rich in mercy and is, as the psalmist says, the shepherd of his flock, may he, may he be pleased to pour out his spirit upon us, especially his church, and turn us back again to himself, that he might also restore us and restore our nation to the glory of God. Amen. Let's, let's pray.